In times like these, being a citizen is a big job. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the virtues of self-rule and debate the state of our republic. Welcome to the Citizen's Prerogative Podcast. This is the voice of your nerdy host, Michael Biscatelli, and we are blessed with a co-host whose passion for our republic precedes him everywhere he goes, Raymond Wong Jr. Thank you. Thank you. It's glad to be back. I feel like we've had a break. (laughs) Every so often... We need to take some time. Hello, everybody. This is episode number 32. We're in season two, and we're still on our series, Back to Basics. Today, we're going to be talking about shelter. So in the best Back to Basics series, just as a recap, we've been talking about food, power, water, and now we're on shelter. We've covered some other things. We'll probably cover some more too. But um, as far as shelter goes, we need to spend some time just talking about what's coming up on deck because how we've done shelter, how we've sheltered ourselves um, in recent times is is not the way we need to be doing it for the future. That's for sure. Um, and there's a lot of indications for this. And without further ado, I'll probably just jump into it. Um, you know, we're going to talk all about shelter, whether it's resiliency, affordability, um, sustainability, and just in general, the value of learning a trade (laughs) and how many trades are involved in something as simple as shelter, something we take for granted, right? And our rent now, maybe buy later as an investment society. We really don't think very deeply about shelter. So speaking of resiliency, um, there's a terminology that I've become familiar with recently, especially with all of the wildfires that we've been experiencing over the ages, especially as of recent time, the matchstick home, (laughs) building homes with matchsticks. And what an interesting thing, but if you visualize a a wood frame construction home in the middle of the desert and anybody, you know, there's lots of images. You may not have lived in the desert or anything, but anytime you saw an image of tracked homes or whatever it might be, chances are it was in the desert or something like it because, you know, it goes on for miles and it's flat and you can just build and build and build. But the point of that is when you look at all those things, when they're in the framing stage um, of development, it's just these Big wood, two by fours, four by fours, eight by fours, whatever they are. But as far as fire is concerned, it's just a bunch of matchsticks. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, it's funny that you went here exactly. Um, I didn't know we we're going to be talking about matchsticks today, but you inspired me to talk about history, which I think is primarily my job is that, you know, during um, the, the you know, transition, you know, the, the, the three little piggies got it right, right? You had brick home, straw home, you know, like they, they, they so the, the wood home was a precursor to the brick home. So during uh, the nation's history, through the history of, of the world, um, all buildings started in more primitive uh, functions, wood, hay, etc. And they moved towards more fire resistant and and resilient models. That's why all Victorian homes, that's why the pinnacle of architecture for for most of our, um, let's just say uh, pre-elevator society was brick 
and mortar because it was resilient, because it didn't start on fire, because it didn't burn down in a huff. So in that sense, we turned the corner, right? So this, this idea, this march towards um, shelter being thought of the wrong way, not a place to protect your family, not a place to keep them safe. It's just somewhere to stick you they just turned it into a giant matchbook. And I, I, I didn't even think about that, Michael. It's kind of funny. And if you think about it, even the, 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 the drywall and everything, right? Maybe that's got some fire retardedness to it, but it all, everything around it is just meant to go up um, like a matchbook. And it, it's interesting to me because I didn't even put that correlation that the Victorians were so dedicated to get, and even better was mud, right? Instead of doing, you know, do a mud brick because that's less likely to burn down than your wood structure homes, which they really didn't do in Arizona. They kind of jumped from mud brick to the, from mud brick to brick because brick is more resilient. And that goes without talking about any of the insulating properties, you know, some of the more harder materials and mud especially right because in the desert southwest adobe adobe style that is all mud isn't it it's all it's a hay mixing normally mm-hmm. so there's there but yeah the out so it's but the outside is all mud so they coat it you know and they, they recoat it and they seal it with that the outside mud clay if you will um and i'm sure someone much more intelligent and astute in that um that environment can can, can tell us more but the but that's, yeah, it's got resiliency, it's got insulation. And I wasn't even thinking about that. The fact that we now create for a whole generation, mm-hmm. fiberglass and synthetic materials made of harmful, I mean, you can't take uh, insulation, I know, and rub it on your face and eat it, right? So oh. we have to really think about what we've done by moving away from bricks and using these great insulations. Yeah. What, do we, what do we got? A toxic environment that goes toxic. up. Yeah, for profit. Why do we do it this way? Why do we do it this way? Because this is the most cost-effective way to get a good margin on turning over a product. It's all manufacturing-based. It's not, like you said, for the safety of your family or anything like that. And and not not resilient. It's not going to last. And people have said this so long i remember people talking about the 70s and 80s builds in arizona in particular and how they're just not and i don't think the newer builds are any better they're just kind of stuccoed over and it's hidden more but you know i think all builds more chicken wire in the newer homes they got a little more chicken wire right so the 70s and the eight like that you're right michael because in my this 80s build that my parents is in the stucco and chicken wire is only on the front of the house the rest of it is just panel board basically so it's kind of like a facade and i know now they put stucco on the whole house wow that's innovative you know that is not innovation that is just realizing whoops that wasn't very resilient right so if we put the whole thing stuccoed but but i I digress i'm getting too passionate about construction because i'm a victorian and i didn't realize they, they, they'd gotten it together, right? They'd really figured out that brick. Well, we won't talk about leaded paints. <laughs> yeah, especially what they the, used on their faces. And the stairwells <laughs> that they created. Oh, they, you mean the, the ones that are too narrow? and, and the, Oh, and the steps are all kinds of shapes and Not distances. regulation? Not what regulation. are you talking about? Regulations? Uh, they didn't need <laughs> them. They had craftsmen. Anyway, I digress. Don't drag me down. Victorians a fun time to talk about, but... 
because because of hubris you know victorian ages are a great time to talk about because we thought we had it all figured out and in a lot in certain ways we did and a lot of ways we didn't um yeah. so we yeah. can just do we a whole pull up pinnacled in other ways right and continued to rise but then they took a dive so efficiency centralization i think we're not straying folks we're talking about the key issues we've always said centralization and and profit and the greed is continues to cause this that's why your houses are cheap and made of matchsticks yeah and the mechanization like you're saying the centralization you know the the collapsing of supply lines and just in time this that and the other thing and you know, just get them up, get them up, get them built and sell them, move them out, get them up and move them out. I mean, like there's this whole just machine designed to do nothing but that for the sake of, again, for profit. So these houses are built cheaply, quickly, um, and to be just as efficient as is marketable, (laughs) as needs to be to be marketable for these homes. Most of them are built now with like, you know, minimal amount of wood, a bunch of foam in the walls, chicken wire on the outside, stuck on, sprayed on top of that, whatever it is, right? Like you can drive a home. Yeah. I mean, you drive a car through these homes and they won't fall down because as long as the car is in between the studs, it's just going to go right through the foam. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, this is, this is ticky tacky, um, you know, big, big time construction out in the big suburbs, obviously, there's a lot of other examples, but I'm I'm never ceased to surprise. Like in San Francisco, for instance, you know, somebody will spend eight hundred thousand dollars and and then gut destroy whatever is there and build a three million dollar home and, and resell it. It's still wood. Now it's different in California. A lot of the reason why wood construction is used here is because it's more flexible for earthquakes and things of that nature. But it's a lack of imagination that leaves us stuck here with matchbox homes, especially in San Francisco, a place where there's no distance. All the homes are butt up against each other. So if there's a fire in one, it's right. going to spread to the next. Where's so, the firewall? At least put a firewall. <laughs> at least, you know, we do it around the garages because we know how combustible cars are. <laughs> oh my gosh. But you know, that's, it's a whole nother story, but we're still building everything like this and we can't, it's old. It's so old and it's so cheap. And when we do it, we still do it because it's cheap and effective and because we buy these homes, you know, nobody, nobody's too concerned about what the studs are made out of, unless you're a property investor, then they're concerned about the studs, but most of us aren't property investors. So we aren't, we digress again, spending a lot of time on, on the convetching part or whatnot, but because housing does need to be affordable. It needs to be affordable. Um, How do we accomplish that? Exactly. So moving us along, we want to build for resiliency. It needs to be affordable. And um, there's new technologies that are coming online, new processes and capabilities. And and hopefully it'll mean a whole new wave of entrepreneurship and and, and new leaders and things like that. But um, I say hopefully only because a lot of the, a lot of the big name tech companies are getting into this space right now, okay? So you've got Google, I think, is investing in factory OS, and who knows? I I doubt Facebook's involved, but there's several companies, um, probably uh, whatever the company Tesla owns, you know, the one that does uh, the solar roofs and things like that. I can't remember the name of that company, but it doesn't matter. 
they're all looking at creating the next wave of home building technologies. And some of it's prefab. Like today, we do have this really awesome process where we can do prefab, prefab modular construction homes. And it reduces the cost, um, the time to build um, you know, problems in the homes. You know, it's just a really efficient way to build great homes at scale and, and for low cost. However, most of those prefab things are still using old world materials. It's still matchstick. It's still, you know, whatever you're using for your exterior siding. And then, um, I mean, hopefully you're using in, in California or any wildfired area, we should be using more steel and aluminum or whatnot as siding and on roofs, especially because embers land on roofs most likely before anywhere else. And so if your roof doesn't catch fire, your house won't catch fire. Um, but then, you know, the walls and everything, they're looking at these new materials and printing techniques. So 3D printing is going to be the future of so many things, and it's not just guns, which is scary. But homes, more importantly, and maybe, I don't know, bulletproof homes. Ha! Heaven forbid, that's where we're going. That's what we need to get. But um, these technologies are emerging, and hopefully it's new entrepreneurs, not just you know these ones that are backed by old school technology companies. I call them old school now. Google, <laughs> I mean, as far as we're concerned, Google might as well be an old school technology company now. Investing in these, you know, in this frontier, and it's really valuable. The reason why we're bringing it up is to raise everybody's awareness around it, because again, this is going to be a consumer-driven change, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, unless the government's going to come in and change regulations, which building codes and regulations are at a local level anyway, so that's going to be whack-a-mole for, you know, time coming. It's really going to be a market shift. It's going to be us demanding sustainable homes, homes that don't come down in an earthquake and don't go up in a fire, you know, homes that protect our families and are designed to last through climate change <laughs> because the weather we knew yesterday is not the weather we're going to have tomorrow. And I think we're learning that's a fact. Let's hear a message from our sponsor, Citizen Do Good. Fulfilling a dream we're all possess an intrinsic love for self-rule that is reciprocated with free speech and equal justice under the law, Citizen Do Good values the promise of all of the amendments to the Constitution along with the original core documents. Taken together, they form a framework and an operating manual for our republic that provides the means to change with our times. The time is now to deeply re-examine our current implementation of governance for the dawning of a new day. We are a proud sponsor of the Citizens Prerogative Podcast, a major partner in spreading the good word about civic love and the power of change for us all. At Citizen Do Good, we want to empower all citizens to participate in their republic in a reconstructive way. With that goal in mind, we need your help to stay on mission and grow this community. Please rate the podcast with five stars on iTunes through the app on the web or through your device. If you don't feel like you can give us five stars, let us know why on our sponsor's Facebook page at Citizen Do Good. Also, make sure you join our newsletter at citizendogood.com. You'll get updates every couple of months on our antics, not just the podcast. While you're there, check out the shop, which has specialty merch and uh, a way to provide a one-time contribution that helps us pay for production and hosting. 
Feel free to share any suggestions you have directly through the Contact Us page. Thanks for your support. I think about how we evolve past this ideal of, of profit, an ideal of making money off of things that are critical to sustaining life. You know, I'm not saying that there's no money to be made in, in, in housing, real estate, but maybe we got it wrong, or maybe the money is just in the excess, right? When you own more than one home. So I think we're really focused on your primary residence and maybe we do a value added tax for those that consume more than one home, right? Because you're really messing with the inventory. Because I'm thinking here, the really the only way can we affect it is, is the inventory by making sure there's more inventory available, that the market has abundance um, so that the housing prices come down. Is that the solution or do we go towards no profit in the housing markets? No, I think it's a great, it's a great point and it's an area that needs some examination because right now it's a race to the top to make the most on every property you flip. And I'm just using the word flip. Like if you built it from desert to, to roof, it, you're still, in my mind, you're building it to flip it. You right. have, you know, you, you paid some sum of money. You, you have a product and now you're turning that product over for some profit, the most amount of profit you possibly can. And that's the only game in town for real estate. Unless you have some special group of people that come together between the government and a bank, right? Because the banks usually provide the financing as the Community Reinvestment Act begs them to do. When you make money off of a community, you need to reinvest dollars in that community. You don't just get to make money and go home. One of the ways banks reinvest money in these communities is they put up a loan, a loan that they don't know how likely they are to get repaid. It's not a loan that they would just give out to anybody. It's because government agencies or nonprofits have come together to say, hey, we're going to give you a partial guarantee or we're going in on it with you in a deal or whatever it is. It's a, it's a, it's a deal. It's a special deal that requires people to come together. It's not a function of our system it's a function of working outside or around our system in order to bring to fruition low-income housing, affordable housing. It's not that we don't have the capacity, the capability to build it. It's because right now the system is only motivated to maximize profit out of all of those transactions. And so what we need to do is create, create a market. We need to establish whether it's through legislation or other means there needs to be a market for affordable housing. There needs to be a motivation for companies to want to come in and supply this product at, at a, a, a cost and a price that's affordable for the majority of people, right? We have an affordability problem in housing. We don't necessarily not have enough homes for people. And I think that's one of the points you're driving at. <laughs> we have fake scarcity in housing. But I think you might be on to something. Sorry, like you're not, you're never on to anything, Michael, but this time you might be on to something. But the, the I'm just thinking if, if we had universal basic income, if companies knew there was a guaranteed 2K, you know, I think they could make it work, right? If they knew that there was no scarcity, 
then there is no real scarcity. It's like the prices would adjust, like empty buildings would be full all the time because they would, they would always find their renters because it's not the risk of going down to that level, right? I think they keep prices high because the people that can afford it you know, they have those higher incomes, they have the reliable incomes, maybe. And yeah, it some keeps them out of that danger buy, market. Like you said, can buy multiple homes. I mean, we're in a very cockeyed or unbalanced system, right? Where it, the more money you have, the more freedom you have and the more opportunity. And that's one of the things that you and I, I think consistently are trying to drive at and thank you for bringing up UBI, because here we are again. Here's one other problem, another area of our system that doesn't work well for the majority of people, I would argue. And there's a very simple solution. It's the same solution for this as many of the other problems that affect the majority of Americans. It's having enough money to live a life, just a regular life, free, to be free, to be free to be able to make choices, because you have a choice because you can afford a choice. That'd be amazing. And yes, I, I agree. I could see where if, if companies knew there was a market that had X amount of money, they could design, right, and build and supply for that particular market. But right now, that group of people at the bottom is very unpredictable, is very unstable, is volatile. very risky, very volatile. Don't know right? what to do. Can't, don't know what to do with it. I build and I I let you, I rent to you, but I don't I don't have any evidence that I can trust that you're going to be able to pay the rent. Yeah, except that you have direct access to their UBI. They garnish their UBI. You know, there's just there is a a very simple mechanism now that guarantees you, which is strange to me that my the UBI would pay my rent. So I'd have that housing burden off of me potentially, you know, if, if we went that direction, because I keep reminding people that UBI is something that phases out once you receive a livable wage, which is about $70,000 a year yeah. in this country and, 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 you know, in the, in the non-major urban zones, you know, and that's what I've been preaching is that, you know, at 70,000, you start to phase it out, right? As you get higher and higher income. But at that point, you have the support, you have a government guarantee, and you have the confidence of the banks and all of them are behind. It's strange, because I didn't realize that such, um, which people would call socialist ideals would end up in capital gains. <laughs> this is what's happening is that UBI, I'm confused where the argument is against it, even from pure capitalists, because it seems to create a stable market. Yeah. And isn't that the best thing for a capitalist? I'm thrown back. Fuel, a stable, steady fuel supply to run capitalism. That'd be amazing. A renewable, fresh, sustainable supply of capital to run the system. And everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to participate. There couldn't be anything better. That Now that's an effective system. That is a functional system. A system where bankruptcy is a function, like guaranteed, built-in, required. It's a, it's a pressure. It's a release valve. That's what I think of it as. Okay, bankruptcy is a, re a release valve in the capitalist system we have set up because failure is an option. Ha terrific failure is an option. But it's limited to, in a sense. Lehman Brothers, 
<laughs> or you have who to be able to the capacity to bankrupt though too so that's yeah. it's, it's limiting so that's why universal programs make way more sense i mean you could argue that bankruptcy is a universal program but that depends on your lawyer you know it, it does it does have some it's a pay-to-play system well, as let well let me throw out there too i think the majority of bankruptcies are medical bill related in our country like the count so painful to, to bring that up so let's just bring it home really quick also for the audience, right? We talk about UBI, why does it matter? UBI as proposed is about $15,000 a year, folks. How much are you paying on your housing? How much is your mortgage? So are we not talking about one other thing? Back to basics, shelter. UBI is in tandem with securing the American dream. I completely agree. And then on the supply side of the equation, really bringing down the costs, like, intentionally to build amazing homes to keep people safe that are affordable and 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 for the future like our system should not be designed to serve the wealthy and right now the housing system we have in place that's who it serves it serves the wealthy it serves the invested investor you know it serves those people who probably need the least amount of service because they're very successful at what they're doing. Um, but <clears throat> again, <laughs> I digress. So um, in any case, prefab, I'm, I'm all about it. We'll see if I can dig up, I'll, I'll dig up some links uh, for, you know, when we post this article out yeah, or when we, when we post this episode, the last thing I think we wanted to cover, um, and, and UBI is great for an affordability perspective. We build the affordable homes. We give people the ability to afford them and not become homeless and get evicted. And there's so many more benefits that come from that. But then the last thing I think is really important in this space of shelter is something I think about more often than I thought I would is the fact that I don't know how to fix anything. I, I, I know how to fix some parts of cars, okay? I, I do know how to maintain a vehicle, a car. That's one thing I did. But I've never like really owned a home or built a shack or like, I don't know the first thing about construction, plumbing, electrical, any of it. And to me, that's a huge risk. And I think there's a lot of us Americans out there without a computer, we probably aren't very capable of producing anything. Wow. Other than speech, which is important. Um, You're right, though. The trade, the, the art the of trades. that trade. Yeah. I mean, any of those things, like, because I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, again, sustainability and, and society and, and, you know, there are a lot of jobs. Housing is experiencing shortages um, because there aren't a lot of people who want to work in those jobs, the framers. And then you think about plumbing, electrical, HVAC, um, termite, pest people. Like there, there's, there are all these industries built up in and around maintaining that um, home, maintaining homes uh, in those environments. And as individuals who participate in renting or buying real estate and this, that, and the other thing, how many of us really actually, though, have any real skill there. And one of the things I just want to throw out there is this idea that we do, and we've made this case, I think, in other episodes about education, but it's 
a point to bring home now, we do need to have more trades in schools. People should know more about how their homes are built. I mean, part of the reason why we don't care about matchstick construction is because we haven't thought about it. We haven't talked about it. How many of us know the difference between, you know, matchstick versus um, brick and mortar versus some of these new, you know, printer-friendly concrete-like materials that they're coming out with? Mud homes, pressed earth homes. And one of the crazy things that I was talking to a construction expert in the industry about this, and they were saying that, you know, the difference, it's marginal, actually, it's like about 10 grand to make a house more resilient, to make it better, to use better materials. I know that was just, you know, just, that's just a, that's just some random figure, right? But they said, it's not a crazy amount of money to put it in a state that's going to survive and it's going to be more resilient and efficient. But that's what they're, that's what the corporations are getting. They're getting a measly margin, you know, off of it, but across, a, you know, a thousand homes they built on a site. That's huge, right? 7,000, 10,000 times. That's yeah, a few people's bonus, right? They're going to be right. like, Oh, look, we chalked it up this year. We did really great without thinking about the consequences. Yeah, it turns out if we, oh, it looks like if we use a foam instead of actual uh, fiberglass, which frankly, you know, neither one of them are good. It's just, it's just, they may, well, we made this huge saving, but yet we lose resiliency. Foam breaks down over time, uh, where fiberglass, you have to burn it or something. It doesn't really break down. Plus the cost of producing, the environmental energy costs of producing those materials that are so unnatural and don't naturally compost in the environment. So when you start talking about holistically the end-to-end life cycle of products, including home construction, this is very not sustainable. It becomes very problematic um, because we aren't considering the true cost of the production of that fiberglass insulation and then the eventual disposal of that fiberglass insulation and the consequences, right? Earth-based products, natural-based products are much more accessible. They may be harder to make a profit off of. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, only if you're like this big manufacturing company, right? Where that that does that particular material doesn't lend its self to your process and your mm-hmm. process is how you generate your profit right and so that's where there's this problem gets embedded in there the motivation to not do things well mm-hmm. generally comes back to money everything's about money and so that's why we're not saying capitalism's wrong we're saying a donut capitalism style is where, where the money is redirected appropriately instead of endless profit tiering, um, which is just not sustainable. So we're seeing it in our homes. And I think that's the key message is that um, shelter is a right. I think that shelter is something we all deserve and we should be talking about it more. We should be having a real good examination now that these 70s homes have aged 40 years. You know, we saw a really good, you know, deregulation stream. So let's see what what's going on with these buildings. And we're seeing it right now in areas like Florida, right? Mm-hmm. Where the environment's more volatile, you're going to see it quickly. But this is going to be a problem across the entire nation. Our buildings are all are not resilient. They were built for the lowest bidder cost. And that's just, we're not saying that that's the wrong way to go. We're, we're probably saying it's just too far. Yeah, I guess the catch here is the profit motive is good to a point. 
because it's singularly focused and we see this everywhere. If you singularly focus people, humans on one metric, their entire moral system warps around that metric. When you, let me just say that one more time for anybody out there who's listening. This is scientifically based research and there are anecdotal examples from banking regulatory actions and other things out there in the universe that show us when you motivate people with one metric, with a singular number, over time, entire institutions will lose their innate moral compass and it will become warped by the gravity of that metric. And people will begin doing things they never would have done without that metric. And this is this is the whole system we're operating in today, unfortunately. And when we harp on profit, it's not because profit doesn't work. It's because it's worked too well and it's become too much of the focus. It's become over-focused. We're over, over-indexed on profit. And we've lost sight of everything that's morally important, the whole purpose of the system. Because you can't eat profit. You can't sleep under profit. <laughs> you know? So... I'll stop. <laughs> yes. We live in a world of imagination and whimsy. And I want to be clear about that. I've said it for many years that we all believe in Disneyland. We all believe in the ideas that diamonds are valuable, right? So we've all really pushed into the imaginary value of things. And so we have the full control to say, wait a minute, let's make a cognitive decision. We've decided that housing is a right. It is not a commodity. Um, and the market will, will adjust. It's not going to happen in our lifetime, but the market will adjust in time. Um, but it's up to citizens to say, no, this is something we deserve. This is something that's constitutionally uh, guaranteed. Because if, you're, if you have your liberty, I think having your own home is, is the best. I don't know. I, for me, it speaks liberty, Mike. To close it out, do you, what do you think? It's a liberty yeah. matter in the Constitution for me. Pursuit of happiness. You know, how can anybody be enabled to pursue happiness if they're homeless or hungry or both? And it doesn't have to be that way, right? That's that's the thing. (laughs) Well, I think that's going to do us for this episode. All right. So um, we've been your hosts. Thank you to Mr. Raymond Wong Jr. And thank you, Mr. Piscatelli. It's truly been a shelter in place of thought. Hmm. It's been something, that's for sure. For more information on this and other episodes, head over to citizendugan.com and click on podcast. While you're there, hit up the contact us page and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from the community. Special thanks to you, our listeners. We saved the best for last. You are the best and you have been for years. Thank you for your support. We know it's painful and we love you. Intro music, a sample from OK Class by Ozzy Jock under Creative Commons license through freemusicarchive.org. Other music provided royalty-free through Fizzly and Studios Inc.